Uh, sometimes it happens incrementally, uh, and so you don't notice it, but every once in a while I have that moment where like that, that sentiment that makes you go, what a time to be alive. It's just amazing. Uh, most of the staff and some others uh, went to a conference in Detroit this weekend. We're on our way home, and I had kind of one of those moments where we were on our way home, and I had a flashback to the days. How many of you remember when, if you took a trip, you had to have with you like a big old map to figure out where you were? Do you remember, remember those days? Like, I feel old just even saying that out loud because like the kids are like, what are you even talking about? Yeah, there used to be a time where you had to have like this big massive map that you kept in your car to tell you where it is that you were going, and so you'd have to pull it out, get to the right state, and really one of the more difficult aspects was even trying to find on the map where you actually were. Because if you didn't know where your starting point was, your map was absolutely useless. So you found where you were, and then from there you try to navigate, okay, turn here, turn here. But nowadays, I don't need a map at all because I have one of these things which means there's some satellite that knows where I'm at at any given moment and can tell me exactly where I'm going. I mean, down to the detail of, like, this section is in red, which means that it knows that there's a traffic jam or it's going to be congested up there before I even get there. And if I am stupid and take a wrong turn, you know what it does on its own? It reroutes me to let me know exactly how to get to where it is that I need to go. And I could pick a, a different voice, the one that's more soothing to me, that makes me more relaxed. I mean, it's just amazing, the world that we live in. I can punch in any destination, and it will tell me exactly how to get there. And in it, I think, oh, what a, what a time to be alive. There's no excuse. Like, anyhow, it's a, the only time it doesn't work is if your location services isn't on. Location is everything. Which reminds me, even in the Old Testament, there's a guy by the name of Naaman, and he was a commander in the army of Aram, and he was a great military leader. The king of Aram uh, highly regarded him until one day he contracted leprosy. So he got leprosy, which if you know anything about leprosy, especially back in that day, was pretty much a death sentence, a slow, prolonged one. But the moment you got leprosy, you were ostracized from everybody. You could not be around anybody else. You were socially excluded. It really was a devastating uh, disease with all sorts of implications and out of the diagnosis, Naaman's wife actually had a servant girl who was taken captive from Israel. And so she knows about a prophet uh, who is in Samaria, and his name is Elisha. So one day she says to her mistress, to Naaman's wife, I wish that your husband would go see the prophet Elisha to be healed. And so Naaman went and saw the king of Aram, and king, the king of Aram sent a letter and a bunch of gifts to the king of Israel so that Naaman could be healed. Well, when the king of Israel received the letter and the gifts, he was immediately frustrated because the king of Israel was thinking to himself, I can't heal anybody. Does, does he think that I'm God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why would you send a guy with leprosy to, he, to be healed by me? And he actually in the end thought that the king of Aram was actually trying to pick a fight with him. And in the end, he was so distraught, he tore his clothes. Well, the prophet Elisha heard about this situation and that the king had, had ripped his robe as a sign of his frustration and mourning and those sorts of things. So he sent a message to the king and says, tell Naaman to come and see me so that he'll know that there's a real prophet that exists in Israel. So it says this in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 9. So, so <coughs> excuse me, Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha then sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. Now, these are just simple instructions, right? Go and wash in the river Jordan, the Jordan River, which, by the way, this is the same river that Jesus was baptized in. It's the Jordan River is in the heart of Israel. Wash seven times, and you'll be healed. This seems simple, like no big deal. But watch Naaman's response here. It's in verse 11. But Naaman went away angry, and he said, I thought 
he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of this leprosy. You see what happened here? Like, Elisha didn't even go out to meet him. He just sent on a messenger. And the messenger just said, go to the River Jordan, dip in seven times, and you'll be healed. And Naaman's wanting some big, you know, show, a hocus pocus, and see the real prophet come out and go, oh, Lord, help you. I mean, there's one's a big scene going on. I didn't get that. Now he's angry about it. So verse 12, in his anger, he starts thinking, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, where he's from, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and he went off, listen, in a rage. And Naaman's servants went, went to him and said, my father, listen, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. As the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Like there was like oil volet in that water. It was amazing the moisturizing effect that it had. The Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. But the prophet Elisha answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. But what's interesting here is Naaman is angry about the location. Why the River Jordan? There's much better rivers in Damascus. And do you know why God has him go to the River Jordan? You know, you know what the answer is? Why God has him go there? I have no idea. <laughs> but sometimes the location matters to God. And for whatever reason... He wants Naaman to go to the River Jordan because if he'll go there, he'll receive his healing. Or there's another story in the Old Testament about another prophet named Elijah. And Elijah had this competition that went down one day with the prophets of Baal. Now, Baal was a god that the Israelites were always tempted to worship rather than the one true god. And so one day, uh, Elijah just, uh, just enters into this contest. He says, listen, let's do this. Let's have a contest between your god Baal and my god Yahweh. And what we'll do is we'll set up two altars with sacrifices, and whichever god responds, that's the real god. So the prophets of Baal, there's 450 of them, they set up their, their altar and they put up their sacrifice and then they start praying and asking Baal to come and receive the offering and nothing's happening. And then the trash-talking prophet Elijah, which he was a trash-talker, he starts taunting them throughout the day. He's saying things like, maybe you need to shout louder, maybe, maybe he's on vacation, maybe your God is busy or he's in deep thought or maybe he's just sleeping. And so in earnest, they start shouting louder and they eventually take out knives and, and they start cutting themselves with swords to show how serious they are. And by the evening, nothing has happened. So Elijah finally steps up and he builds an altar out of 12 stones, one to represent each tribe of Israel. He cuts the, uh, the offering in half, and he puts it on top of the, he puts the wood and puts the offering on top of the wood. And then he has a trench dug around the altar, and he calls for four large jars of water to be poured over everything. And that's what they do. They come and pour four large jars of water over the offering, over the wood, over the altar, all the way down to the trench. When they get done, Elijah says, do it again. They take the four jars, once again pour it over. They do it a second time, and finally Elijah says, do it a third time. And once again, they waterlog everything, and then Elijah steps back, and he calls on God, and God shows up, and he rains fire down, and it consumes everything, including the water that was in the trenches. And when that happens, the people of Israel, they begin shouting, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And then Elijah commands that all 450 prophets of Baal get slaughtered, which is what happens. 
Well, word of this gets back to Jezebel, who was a queen and not a good one, and she makes a vow. When she hears, she worships Baal, and when she hears that Elijah slaughtered all 450 prophets of Baal, she makes this vow. She says, may the gods deal with me, may it be ever severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. You hear what she's saying, right? I'm going to kill you. Now, if I'm Elijah, I'm thinking, I'd be like, who do you think you are? Did you not just see what I just did? Like 450 dead because I called on God. And I think he'd have this big, victorious, triumphant moment, but that's not what happens. As soon as Elijah hears that Jezebel has threatened his life, he goes running. Like he's scared to death of Jezebel that she's going to kill him. And where he goes is to what's called Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb's other name is Mount Sinai. You may be familiar with it. This is where God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments. This is where God revealed himself to Moses. And so if you were running to get to God, this seems like a good location because it's worked in the past, except... Elijah's not supposed to be there. Elijah had been given an assignment to go to the desert of Damascus. And so while he's at Mount Horeb, God does show up, and he says this in 1 Kings 19, verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him and asked this question. What are you doing here, Elijah? So Elijah goes on about how zealous he is for the Lord and how Israelites broke covenant and he's the only prophet left, blah, 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 which isn't true, but he thinks that that's the case. So God tells him, I want you to go stand on the mountain. And my presence is going to pass by you. Elijah goes out to stand on the mountain. And all of a sudden, uh, this great wind takes place. And Elijah thinks, oh, maybe this is God. And in the end, God didn't show up. And then an earthquake takes place. And you think, oh, of course, God will be in the earthquake. And so after the earthquake, Elijah notices, nope, God wasn't in that either. And then fire happens, which, come on, that's like a sign. Like, God's got to be in that. And at the end, Elijah was able to, uh, to discern God wasn't in that. And then it says in the text that, and then what came next was just a gentle whisper. And as soon as Elijah heard the gentle whisper, he covered his face and recognized that this is God. But here's what that gentle whisper said. Chapter 19, verse 13 says this, then a voice said to him, second time, listen, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is the second time God has had to ask Elijah, why are you here? And replied, once again, listen, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, but put your prophets to death with sword, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. So the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Moholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. And now this is what you find is, Sometimes location matters. Elijah was trusting in past experiences. And he decides to go back to the familiar and what had always worked. He wanted to go to Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb. And sometimes we do that in our own spiritual life. Like you keep going back to what used to work in your life. So you have that devotional uh, habit going on. You read those books or you attend this conference. And it used to be a season in your life where it was helpful to you spiritually. But now you go back there and it's not the same. It's not doing the same thing for you. Well, says, well, sometimes God isn't calling you to where you were in your past. He's calling you to something new. And what used to work in your past might not work for you now, and he's calling you to something else. And this is what's happening to Elijah. I'm not calling you to the past. I'm calling you to your future. I want you to go to the desert of Damascus. And why does God want him to go to the desert of Damascus? I guess ultimately, I really don't know. But the, important, the location was important. And Elijah was in the wrong place. And he needed to get to the location that God wanted him to be in to do what God wanted him to do. 
Or if you flip into the New Testament, I don't know if you remember, after Jesus' resurrection, he hangs out with his disciples for 40 days, and he speaks to them and teaches them all about the kingdom of God. And on one of these occasions, they're eating together, and Jesus looks at his disciples and he says this. As Luke tells us the story in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. It says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus has identified for his disciples the location that he wanted them to be in. Go to Jerusalem and do not leave until you receive the gift my Father has promised, which is the Holy Spirit. And if you were to ask me why, my answer is, I don't really know. I mean, was God not capable of sending his Holy Spirit to his disciples wherever they might be as he does today? And they were from Galilee, many of them from the city of Capernaum. Could they not go back and check on their families, maybe their businesses? Would, would it have been a big deal for God to send them the Holy Spirit there? And my answer is, I don't really know. But for whatever reason, the location was important, and God wanted them in Jerusalem and to stay there. And my guess is, if they had disobeyed, at the very least, I imagine they would have missed the entire Pentecost moment where the Holy Spirit did show up. And they all spoke in tongues. And 3,000 Jews were converted and became Christians and were baptized. Jerusalem is where they were. And Jesus wanted them to stay there. Because sometimes location matters. And sometimes that location isn't revealed in a great wind or an earthquake or a fire. but just a gentle whisper. And when I think about our journey of the Livingstones Church over the past 11 years, it is a journey that has at the heart a particular location set for us by God. Because the truth is, like the disciples, or like Elijah, even probably more like Naaman, 15 years ago, we were very unsatisfied with this location. Our church building here was built in 1956, and it was aging. This is what it looked like before even worshipped in it back in 1956. This is what it used to look like on the inside here before anyone had worshipped here. We didn't have air conditioning, which I know isn't a big deal in January, but in July, like, you don't have to preach on hell. You're just sitting in it. That's what it felt like all the time. And listen, you can walk through this entire property. We do not live in extravagance at all. But I'm telling you, 15 years ago, you should have seen it then, like before everything got redecorated and redone. I mean, ooh, even our, just our kids' space was just like, oh, that's, this is, it's embarrassing now looking back at what it looked like. And beside that, we were kind of in the middle of a neighborhood in a neighborhood that most of the families who came here at the time didn't even live in. Like, we just were not connected to our community, and the community didn't even really know we existed. I mean, I remember I came back here to preach, and I'd meet somebody on Woodside, like, it's a block away. And I'm telling them, I'm the preacher of the church there on Donmore, and they have this puzzled look on their face. Like, there's a church on Donmore? Like, yeah. yeah. It's like, I thought it was an armory or, or the synagogue. They had no idea. And so, man, we decided, let's just move. Let's just get out of here. And we actually put together, this in 1999, we put together a committee of people here to figure out how to sell this place, and we had conversations with, they're called church growth services. They were a, a company that specializes in helping churches uh, sell properties and build new buildings. And I got to tell you, personally, I was super excited, like super jazzed. Like, we're getting a new building. It's like a new car, right? You get a new car. That's how I picture, like, we're going to build a brand new church. I'm going to walk in the door and just go like, that's not what I smell when I walk in this one. This <laughs> is a totally different smell. And I was like, that's what we're going to do. And it was going to have air conditioning. 
And I knew enough even about church growth that I knew if you could move out of a neighborhood and plant yourself on like a major thoroughfare like the bypass or a major highway, somewhere where there's a lot of traffic that goes by all the time, and you put the right sign with the right logo out, sometimes you could grow your church at least to an extent just like that. So we were in the process of doing, I mean, I called Stanley Clark and said, hey, if we sell, would you be interested in buying? And, and they didn't make me any promises, but they said, if you decide to sell, just call and let us know and we'll, we'll have a conversation. So I'm like, woo. We're leaving. Like, let's get out of here. We're move, uh, like, in my heart, my mind, we're, we're going to find Mount Horeb or a nice river in Damascus. And then I turned 30 years old, just a couple years ago. I turned 30 years old. <laughs> and I decided to do uh, 40 days of prayer and fasting. Uh, I don't know if the story of the God, when Jesus turned 30, that's what he launched his public ministry. And right before that, he fasted for 40 days. I just thought that'd be kind of neat to do that. So I fasted for 30 days, just stayed here, worked everything. But the last 10 days... I was just completely by myself in silence and solitude, which if you know my personality is excruciating, but I made it through. For 10 days, I stayed at the Lindenwood Retreat Center in room number 7. And one evening, I'm there. I started on June 7th, because that's when I got baptized, uh, uh, on June 7th, 1981, which a couple, couple years ago. <clears throat> but one night, I'm just I'm praying about selling our building, moving to a new location, building a brand new building with air conditioning, put up a fancy neon sign. And in that moment, the Lord spoke back. Wasn't a strong wind, no earthquake, like fire. It was just a gentle whisper. It said this, what makes you think you'll be a better steward somewhere else than where you're presently at? And I remember thinking, oh, location. God cares about location. Now, at the moment, I, that, I mean, what happens that evening, all of a sudden, God just showed me our location. Like, everything just, what's crazy to me is, like, I was born and raised here. Like, I went to Monroe. I went to Jackson. I, I graduated from Riley. Like, this is where I'm from, and yet when I moved back here to serve as the pastor here, like, for whatever reason, like, none of the neighborhoods came to my mind, nothing. And then this one evening, all of a sudden, the Lord was just kind of showing, this is your location. He brought to mind the Miami Hills Apartments, which if you just kind of jump over our fence line, you'll hit the synagogue, take one more jump, and you'll be there at Miami Hills. at Section 8 government housing, and you can find all sorts of stuff there. And I just couldn't think of a time as a church where we'd done anything for Jesus with anybody who lived at Miami Hills. And if you go on the other side of Southmore Housing Co-op, it's a different place. It was kind of uh, uh, housing that went up quickly after the, the war because of the population boom that was taking place there. And if you've ever been in there, it goes on for days. Tons of people live there. And I just couldn't think of anything. We're right around the corner. And I couldn't think of anything we'd done as a church that would be a blessing in the name of Jesus to anybody at Southmore. And then Monroe School came to mind. And at the time, this is back, you know, in 2000, uh, Monroe had the second lowest I-STEP test scores in the school corporation, which I only said to say it's a reflection of our neighborhood and our community that we're in. And I started thinking about Riley High School. Like, if you just kind of go out our driveway here, it dead ends eight blocks down there at Riley before Plan Z. Riley was the largest high school in the South Bend School Corporation. And then just a couple blocks from there at the time was another primary center, Studebaker. And at the time, it had the lowest I-STEP test scores. If you just go down Donmore and just hang a right on, you know what you could find on Michigan? You could find everything on Michigan Street. And it felt like the Lord was saying, where are you going to go? Like, where are you going to move to? where you can have a bigger impact for the kingdom of God than where you are already located. So I left that retreat time, and I was just convinced, I don't think we're supposed to move, which is embarrassing because I really wanted to. We had committees together. Like the whole, we got together with all the elders and the staff at the time, and I just said, I think the Lord wants us to stay and figure out how do you go from being an unhealthy acapella church of Christ, which is what we were. We were just, there's no band like acapella. How do you go from that to being an outward-focused church that exists for the sake of the neighborhood? Now, we took six weeks, just they had to pray themselves, like either I was just needed to eat a burrito or it was really the Lord. Those are one of the two options. 
And six weeks later, we came back, and everybody said, I think that's right. So we scrapped our plans to uh, move and decide we're going to stay here and plant deep roots. And, and the reason why is because our location is in the heart of the south side. Of, like, if you get a map, you can see here on the, on the screen, we really are in the middle of the south side of South Bend. And the zip codes of 46613, 46614, there are 42,500 people who live on the south side of South Bend, about 11,800 kids who go to schools like Riley and Jackson and Marshall and Hay and Hamilton and Monroe and Lincoln. I mean, that's all around us. We're about to leave. I feel like God said, leave? I've called you to that location. You're in the heart of that. And so we gathered as a church, and we began to figure out, what do, how do we do this? And so we formulated our vision, and it's simply this. Uh, it's a long vision statement, but this is the first sentence is this. We're ambassadors of Christ wherever we find ourselves. Now, this is important because not everybody who goes to this church lives on the south side. In fact, we don't want everybody here to live on the south side necessarily. Um, but wherever you do live, you should represent Jesus' government where you live. If you work in Mishawaka, when you go to work in Mishawaka, represent Jesus. That's what an ambassador does. You're going to represent the government of Jesus, how Jesus wants things to be done in Mishawaka. If you go to school in Elkhart, represent Jesus as an ambassador of Jesus in the school in Elkhart. But collectively as a church, what we decided is, He's called us because we're in the middle of where we are to the south side of South Bend. And so you'll hear a lot about the south side of South Bend. Like everything that we do is on the south side of South Bend. And sometimes people are like, and this is the reason why. There are thousands and thousands of great things going on in the kingdom of God. Thousands of them. And we would be subject to the mercy of everybody, anybody's idea. Well, we do this, we do that. You're kind of all over the place. It's sort of like a diffused light is great to, to illuminate a room. But if you want really penetrating power, you want that light to be concentrated like a laser beam. And what we know is, this is what God has called us to. This is what we do. So if you come and say, hey, we should do something at River Park, the answer will be no. You, what, God doesn't love people in River Park? Not as much as people on the south side, but he does love them. It's okay. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. That's just not who we are. That's just not what we do. God has called us to this. And so we have kind of concentrated our collective energies here on the south side of South Bend. And so it becomes for us having to figure out our neighborhood. And here's what I'm being challenged with is... Um, what we knew about our neighborhood 11 years ago is probably not true anymore because neighborhoods shift and they change. And it would be well for us as a church to go back and ask other questions now of our neighborhood because we recognize that people who live in Miami Hills, the good news of Jesus will affect them differently than people who live in Erskine Manor. That the neighborhood that's on Dayton Street is far different than the neighborhood that's on Woodside. And how do we be faithful representatives of Jesus in this neighborhood and in this community, that we look like Jesus here. And uh, I heard at this conference we went to in Detroit, uh, one of the pastors referring to his neighborhood and his own frustration of outreach, like not being able to make an impact on the neighborhood, noticed that the person who's making the biggest impact, who had the most outreach in the neighborhood, was the drug dealer. And so he wanted to get some outreach tips from the drug dealer, and one day just went up to him, just asked him, like, like what's going on that you have such an impact and kind of outreach in this neighborhood? And here's what he said to him. He said, I'm always out here on the street. So in the morning when people go out of their house to get the paper or to go to work, they see me. When they take their kids to school, they see me. When they have to take a trip to the store, they see me. When they come home from work, they'll pass by and they'll see me. If they're out in the evening sitting on their porch, they'll see me. And then he said to the pastor, if they want to see you, they have to go into your church. And immediately he recognized, oh, yeah, yeah, like we come here on a Sunday morning to, hey, it's okay to be encouraged, it's okay to be equipped, it's okay for us to kind of get our marching orders to kind of encourage one another. But it's not what happens in here that matters, it's what happens when we're out there. This is the question for us, even 11 years, as God has been good to us in terms of mission and vision and impact here on the south side, it is another thing, 
it's, it would be good for us to once again ask questions of, we're in the heart of this neighborhood. What would Jesus do in the heart of this neighborhood? And, and if you think, oh, he'd probably hang out at church all the time. Like, no, he wouldn't. Like, there's nothing in the Gospels that support that. Like, if anything, Jesus would probably go to church, but he'd spend most of his time with those that would get him in trouble. Because that's what was happening with Jesus. He's always in trouble. For you hang out with the wrong people. You hang out with the wrong crowd. Something for us to think through. The heart of our, the, 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 the south side is where we're located. And it is a diverse side. So take a look at this video. Here's the south side that we think God has called us to as a church in terms of vision. Between my heart and soul When my pride tries to take control It's hard to see What I was meant to be And we are Living in a world without a cause And there's a need that seems impossible But I can hear I hear you calling me to raise a banner of love up high in these city streets One hope for all the world to see Be my banner of love This love is a burning flame One voice crying out your name You're my banner of love
Eugene Peterson's The Message uh, translates John chapter 1, verse 1, referring to Jesus. It says, God took on flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. And something about that, that's what we do here at 718 East Dunham, where this is the location God has placed us to be Jesus in this neighborhood, which then calls on us to have to ask the questions, where would Jesus be? Where would he hang out? And what would he do? And that's what we begin to do. But we knew, and the second sentence of our vision statement is, we needed to pursue intentional relationships. We knew God had a better vested interest in that than even we did, and he would, he would establish it for us by the power of his spirit. And, and this is an important distinction. Nobody is our project. No family at Miami Hills is the project of Livingstone's church because, one, that only produces transactions, and ultimately it's obnoxious. Like, we're here to fix you now. So you can be like, that's, that's not it is. How do you have a real relationship, like a give and take that's reciprocal in nature? No, no kids, they're not our project. The question has become for us, how do we have real relationship with students at Monroe and with, with their families? And so this is what God has called us to. And just what we don't last three years or 11 years is these three things, just commit ourselves to intercession and prayer, Serving well and invitation. Just those three things. Praying, serving, inviting. Praying, serving, inviting. I mean, I can go back 11 years ago. I remember we started out with 40 days of prayer. We were much smaller. Like, I don't, we even didn't even have 100 people here, like as a church. <laughs> and we thought, let's pray for 40 days, every hour. So we put together a prayer room down the hallway, and we had people sign up for every hour. Like they come for one hour and pray for this uh, vision, for, this, for the neighborhoods, for the schools, for the church, for all the buildings. In fact, and I remember thinking at the time, you know, there might be somebody misses us two in the morning, three in the morning. It's not like God's going to go, well, can't bless you. I mean, we'll be all right. But 40 days later, we didn't miss a single hour. We had somebody in that prayer room every hour for 40 straight days. And I believe many of you are sitting here this morning because of that prayer room and those prayers that were lifted up. And it became for us asking the question, and even still today, where are you, God, and what are you doing? We just want to do what you're doing in the neighborhood. It's much easier for us in that regard. And so prayer has become one of those rhythms for us in regards to what is God doing. The second thing is a service. <laughs> and this is important because we recognize you can't ignore your neighborhood for this long and then open the doors and go, hey, we're open for business. And people go, oh, well, let us come on in. Like, you had to serve. But here's the deal. You couldn't serve with any expectation of growth. That's not real service. That's an ulterior motive. You had to serve simply because that's who Jesus is. Because we're following Jesus, he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And it doesn't matter if anyone ever shows up because of our service, you serve in the manner of Jesus because we're his followers, and we had to serve our neighborhood. And so, man, when I think back over the last 11 years, we've done big things and small things and medium-sized things, and I'm telling you, I couldn't be prouder of us as a church for all the things that we have done by way of service and continue to do. But it is my heart to say, yeah, we need to just dream still again afresh how do we serve this neighborhood and this community? What really will make an impact? What will really bless people in the name of Jesus? So I just Even this past year, I remember us getting, we've done lots of things. The Ready, Set, School, going back to April where we gathered together on a Saturday. We went out and, and blessed 10 different uh, agencies and organizations here on the south side of South Bend. So take a look at this video. This is what we did back in April as we gathered together to try to make an impact here in serving on the south side of South Bend.
about doing that, God blesses that, and all of a sudden, neighborhoods and communities are transformed as we look like Jesus. And so, through, through prayer, through service, and then invitation, invitation to Jesus, invitation to the Living Stones Church, and those three rhythms have been for us, uh, we see just God bless us in, in those things. But here's what we know, like, the goal is not just to get bigger as a church. Um, anyone could do that. The, the goal is change lives and real spiritual transformation. So the third sentence of our vision was simply that with all who accept this invitation, we will pursue spiritual transformation at all levels. And what we mean by all levels is I know that God could show up this morning right now and do something major in your life, even unexpectedly. Or tomorrow morning you could wake up and get in your car and you're driving on your way to work and God could show up and do something amazing that transforms your life. I know sometimes just walking through suffering and pain can be a major transforming moment for you spiritually in your life. But here's what we know, like as a church, like the place we've seen spiritual transformation best happen is in a small group context. That's why we do groups here, why we encourage groups here. Because the truth is, and you probably know this to be, be the case, like in a, in a size like this, with everyone showing up like this, you could show up week after week and, hi, how are you? Good, good to see you. How did you see the Cubs games? Yeah, it was disappointing. And get in your car and you could do that for 20 years while your house is on fire, like literally your whole world is falling apart around you and no one knows. Kind of put on our mask, kind of smile, do those, those things. But if you're in a small group context of maybe six, seven, eight other people in a living room or you're meeting in a coffee shop, your house cannot be on fire without somebody noticing and putting their arm around you to pray for you or encourage you or to bless you or to say, let me help you walk through this together. And those are the places where we've seen values best shared. And then the last sentence of our vision statement is, then we'll send out other churches with like vision throughout South Bend, Michiana, region, state, nation, and world. And I, I mean, I'll confess 11 years later, like, we've not done this. I got my own frustrations in that, so we're still praying through timing and resources and what that looks like for us. Maybe it's just a matter of you step out in faith, and I know it's a big risk, and God blesses it. But here's where, like, here's why we don't want everybody here that just lives on the south side. Because we'd like to also then plant a Living Stones church on the east side of South Bend in the middle of a neighborhood. It doesn't have to be on a bypass, it'll be on a major thoroughfare or highway, but in the same place like we're located in the middle of a neighborhood, they'll be located in a neighborhood, and you do the same things we've done here, except for that would be appropriate on the east side. And so what happens is you would just pray for your neighbors there and serve your neighbors there. Instead of talking about Monroe School and Jackson School and, and Riley, you'd talk about McKinley, and you would talk about Jefferson, and you'd talk about Adams. Instead of praying for the 42,500 people living in 46613, you would pray for the 27,000 people living in 46615, 46617. We do the same sort of things that we've done here. And what if those two churches began to plant another church on the west side of South Bend? 
and on Niles, Michigan, and what if maybe Laporte, or maybe we probably won't go to Granger because we heard they got a church there, but you, you get what I'm saying, right, in terms of like, and in the end, you just it's a small movement of just how do you have neighborhood churches doing neighborhood things like Jesus would if he lived there in the neighborhood? And for us, location matters. And if you ask me why, I guess in the end I would just have to say, I'm not really sure that God wants us here. He wants us serving this neighborhood. He wants us to make an impact in this community. God wants us to exist as a community of faith in the middle of a neighborhood, being Jesus in this neighborhood. So that if we were to cease to exist, let's just, for whatever reason, we just died, didn't exist anymore. We'd want to be missed. Like We'd want the neighborhood to go, no, we're, we're worse off that the Living Stones Church doesn't exist here anymore. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of churches that exist that if they were to die, nobody outside of that church would even know. And that's not what we want. We want to be the kind of a church that impacts the south side of South Bend that should we cease to exist, the neighborhood would notice and be worse off because of it. And I have to tell you, as I think back on the past 11 years, I'm so proud of you. All the things that we've done, all the ways you have sacrificed your time and your energy and your money to see it happen, I couldn't be prouder. And I also recognize that we're not done. There's still a lot going on in our neighborhood and our community. But as we've been talking now for weeks about Hinge, the moving parts of the Living Stones Church, we recognize, listen, the first call to Jesus is to die to ourselves. <laughs> no easy thing. What that means is we're not asking the question, well, what do we want? What do we prefer? How do we like things? That's not our primary or driving question. We're asking, what is God doing? What does he want? And he's inviting us into what is a mission of love, which has tone. And he's offered us an invitation that we talked about last week, and we said yes to being on Team Jesus. And because we're in this place, in this location, we have our marching orders. Our commander-in-chief has spoken in regards to our mission, and he'd give other churches their mission. It won't be the same as ours. But we know ours. This is what he's called us to do, to be Jesus here in this location, because sometimes location matters. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray together.